High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of February 22nd. Coming up on today's show. Reverse voodoo engineering. VR on the Coco. Rare arcade found rotting in field. And a new SD card solution for the MSX. Oh, this and our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Now, John, the single greatest leap in gaming in the 90s was, for me at least, the Voodoo Accelerator cards from 3DFX. We've talked about it plenty of times on the show before. I absolutely love them. Founded in 1994, the company quickly dominated the market for 3D graphics acceleration in gaming with what we now call GPUs. The GPU is part of every computer these days. You really will be hard-pressed to find a machine without 3D hardware acceleration lurking somewhere within to help push those polygons. But this hasn't always been the case. For gamers on all platforms, we had custom chips to help with our 2D gaming, hardware sprites and blitter, and all manner of assistance in our machines. But when someone wanted to produce a game in three dimensions, the workload would well, it would all fall upon the CPU to do the hard work and uh, it would do what we now refer to as software rendering. It could also turn the tables for certain systems and how well they performed. Um, the low-cost ZX Spectrum, for example, would put out better frame rates than the more expensive Commodore 64 on many occasions if it was working in 3D, just owing to the different processors and the load that was put on the processors. In the 90s, the thirst for 3D games reached a point where well, something had to be done, really. And after many false starts, companies such as Matrox and S3, they were all fighting it out to become the new standard in 3D graphics cards. One company rose to the top, and they didn't beat the competition with clever marketing or by buying them all out with a, a suitcase full of money. No, what they did was they simply blew everyone out of the water with pure performance. Many of us will never forget the first time that we used a Voodoo-equipped PC, patched a game we'd been playing in software-rendered mode, and saw it at a higher resolution, a higher frame rate, and with all the trimmings like anti-aliasing, smoothing out all of those, jackie, uh, those jaggies. It really was a quantum leap in gaming performance overnight. I won't forget the first time I fired up a Voodoo game, John. <laughs> I really mm. won't. And these cards, naturally, they amassed a dedicated and a loyal fan base, myself included, but... My love affair with them only really survived two generations of cards. I jumped ship after the Voodoo 2. Were you on the Voodoo train, John? Neil, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to be a bit of a disappointment here. I, I just I had no interest in 3D gaming on the PC whatsoever. Um, to me, you know, in the in the mid to late 90s, uh, people that, that gamed on PCs were people that were really into uh, first-person shooters or really into ultra-realistic racing games, and that definitely was not me. Uh, remember, my, my favorite genres at the time were JRPGs and, and also couch co-op games like Mario Kart, uh, genres that the, the first generation of 3D gaming didn't, didn't really touch at all. Uh, up until I bought my first proper gaming PC all the way up in 2014, uh, in oh, my wow. view, the, the computer was all always for strategy games, you know, like SimCity, StarCraft, what I call lean forward gaming experiences. Uh, when I played action titles like platformers and racing games, I just always enjoyed playing them more on a big screen with a proper controller leaning back on the couch. That's just the, just my personal preference. In fact, I never even noticed 
the GPU requirements of computer games until I got into World of Warcraft around 2008 or so and realized that the GPU in my iBook with a whole 32 megs of video RAM was just not cutting it anymore. I'm sure the fact that I was also a big Mac guy during this time had something to do with it. You know, Mac's just not known for their for their gaming prowess. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean you didn't benefit from the, you know, the progress and the competition mainly that was caused by the 3DFX cards. Sure, um, sure, Because, sure. you know, that fed into the consoles, it fed into the Mac. You just weren't trying to buy the latest and greatest graphics card as soon as it hit the shelves like I was, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, so my next question was going to be to you, how about 3DFX enhanced games and which ones stood out for you? But I guess you don't have much knowledge on that topic. Yeah, I, I did look at a list of games, you know, um, to, to, to see uh, what was around at the time. And I did play some of these games. You're right. The, you know, all of the benefits of the 3D graphics cards did find their way into consoles to some extent. Uh, I did play, you know, some of the games like San Francisco Rush. I saw in there Virtual Fighter 2. These were 3D FX enhanced games on the PC, but I played them on the consoles, on the PlayStation, all the, on the N64, sure. stuff like that. So um, I'm sorry, Neil, you may have to hire a new co-host for this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. And in the other direction, those consoles, especially the PlayStation, they were creating the competition that was driving the PC card manufacturers to try and keep up because... Who wanted a £2,000 PC when they could buy a, you know, a £150 PlayStation and right, outperform right. it in gaming? So, you know, it worked both ways. It, it did. Um, now, now, how about me, you? What were, what yeah. were some of your favorites? Well, for me, I was just moving on to that, John, and it was definitely Carmageddon for me, mm. um, a game that played incredibly well in software mode. It had a, a really lovely weighty feel to the vehicles. I loved you know, the, the faster processes that we were getting at the time, they could give us this extra layer of physics and this lovely feel to the game. But then when I patched it with a 3DFX patch, oh, it was just perfection. Um, it, I completed that game many, many times over. Higher resolution, smoother graphics, it, it, a, a larger draw distance. What an experience that was. Um, and I'm sure many listeners can relate who did the same. Um, but I did jump the voodoo ship because of this new fangled thing that came along called DirectX. Um, that was gaining traction with hardware manufacturers who were now chasing down the voodoo's lead. So I moved on. But voodoo cards did keep coming and they did add support for DirectX as well as retaining their own graphics API, which was called Glide. And um, very impressive that was too. But DirectX and these other manufacturers were catching up. Mm -hmm. And things then, with the Voodoo cards, they started to get a bit silly, John. I don't know if you if you saw these things. Uh, the price of the Voodoo cards was pretty premium. The performance was starting to be surpassed by cards from ATI and NVIDIA. And as we got into some of the later cards, I remember they just looked huge in comparison, these Voodoo cards. They were monstrously large cards with fans all over them. They really were a <laughs> sight to behold. Um, and then the Voodoo range did come crashing to a halt with the final card, which was the Voodoo 5, 5,500, which was late to the market. That was pretty much the nail in the coffin for it. Its competitive edge had been lost. And then an unreleased Voodoo 5, 6,000, the legendary unreleased 6,000 was canned. And this was speculated that it was going to have a $600 price tag. So, oh, my gosh. Know, huge, huge amount of money. NVIDIA went on to buy out 3DFX. And that was the end of them. Until now, John, the, the, <laughs> the phoenix, the phoenix of 3DFX has risen because uh, Controller Reese shared a story on the sub subreddit this week uh, of a man known only as Anthony. Now, Anthony has reverse engineered the 
fabled 6,000 card. Yes, some early examples of that card did make it out into the wild before it was killed off. And this card has got 128 meg of RAM, which is huge on a graphics card from, uh, we're talking about around the year 2000. So masses of RAM. It has four VSA 100 chips, VSA meaning Voodoo Scalable Architecture. And this is what made the Voodoo card so pricey in the end. Where competitors had one single graphics chip on their card, Voodoo made this scalable architecture so they could throw multiple processors onto a card and scale up the performance. But of course, that came with a, a much greater cost. Now, Anthony's card works identically to the original. He's reverse engineered the 6000. Um, it uses the same drivers that came out, same compatibility. Um, it has the same glitches or bugs that you would have found on the original. It's an incredible achievement to have done this because this is a complex bit of silicon. Mm. The only thing that we seem to be missing, though, is footage of the thing running <laughs> because I can't find this thing demonstrated anyway. It's widely reported on. There's photos of the card and it looks gorgeous, but I really want to see a demonstration. I want to see what the ultimate voodoo card looks like in motion and hopefully we'll see some footage soon but until then you can find a link in the uh, show notes today and uh, at least go and have a look at that gorgeous card and hopefully we'll see it in action soon so well done anthony neil the world of virtual reality is upon us over the past 25 years this is the line we've been fed over and over again uh, from early experiments with the Amiga and PC technology in the late 80s and early 90s, and with the second wave of VR headsets like the Vive and the Oculus making waves going on five years ago. It's hard to believe that those are five years old now. Uh, virtual reality always seems like it's just on the cusp of breaking through to the mainstream. Now, Neil, have you tried any of these newer VR headsets? I have. I've got the Vive myself. Um Lawnmower Man has a lot to answer for, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <Going back to> <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I haven't got the newer HD version of the Vive. Uh, so this is a few years old now, the one that I've got. But it still blows me away. Um, it's still a real event to use it. You know, it's not a casual form of gaming for me. It's got to be planned. I've got to say to myself, I'm going to have a VR session on Saturday. Mm. It's that kind of deal for me. And I go and set it all up and... I love it. As someone who was right there back in the 90s, I went to the Trocadero Center in London, which was this big arcade where they had the virtuality machines in the early 90s. Oh. I bought stereoscopic glasses. Um, I very nearly bought a VR headset in the early 2000s for my PC, which was uh, by this company called Imagine or Imagine. Imagine, that makes more Probably sense. Probably so. <laughs> I've been saying it wrong all of these years, and now I've read it. <laughs> Imagine. Um, I don't know if you remember them, though, but they made a headset called the Z800, and I came really close to buying one for flight simming. It supported um, DirectX. It had head tracking. Uh, the thing that put me off was just that it had a really limited field of view. Mm, so you were yeah. always looking through these little squares. Um, and that's still a kind of a problem that plagues headsets today, but they are working sure. on improving that. But um, yeah, I've followed it very closely and I've waited decades for VR to come home, John. Absolutely decades. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad we're closer to it being a, a reality now in the way that it was presented to us in things like Lawnmower Man. We're not there yet, but we're getting a lot closer now. Yeah. How about you? Have you got one? Yeah, well, I did. Um, I had an Oculus Rift for a while. I picked one up secondhand off eBay, and, and it was really cool. I mean, the, the the promise of VR was delivered to me in, in the fact that you know when you put one of these headsets on, 
you really do feel like you're transported in a way uh, that I think maybe you you weren't in earlier generations. But after the initial kind of novelty wore off, um, I, I came to terms with the fact that it was more of a struggle. The juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Uh, I, I was constantly struggling with the floor being at different heights because my external sensor placements never stayed steady. Um, I, uh, I I I didn't mount. I don't think I mounted the the sensors correctly on the walls, and things were things were not good. And also, you know, I would constantly just be feel like I would feel like I was on this leash tethered to my PC. So, um, but thanks to a new development in hardware, solving movement issues in VR may be a thing of the past. A company called Virtuix has developed a device called the Omni that works as a get this a multi-directional treadmill which allows you to move around in any direction for any length of time inside a game's world. So think about it. Instead of being limited to, say, at best, uh, an 8 by 8 foot space inside your room, uh, you could roam the length of a football pitch with this thing. Nice, nice. But this isn't that new, really, as an idea, is it? It's, uh, you know, the VR treadmill. It's, it's always, they've tried it. It's always looked kind of awkward in the past when they've tried it. Mm -hmm. This device, it does look compact enough to put in your room, but it does still look a bit like something you might find in a hospital ward. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you're right. You're like right. having your spine realigned, you know, or something like that. You're, you're really strapped into this thing. Um, but that's not the whole story, is it? Is, is, is there a retro angle attached to this device that you want to tell us about? What's it all about? Yeah, uh, you got it. You know, there, it seems... <laughs> that a uh, retro enthusiast named Ben Drakes has managed to hook one of these Omni units up to a Tandy color computer, or as they're known to their, their fans, the Coco. Uh, so just in case you're not familiar with the Coco, Radio Shack, which was an electronics retailer here in the U.S., uh, produced a line of computers in the 80s marketed toward the same crowd as the C64, the Atari 8-bit line, all the rest. Uh, the color computer didn't sell as many units as the heavy hitters, but it has an extremely devoted fan base. I would compare it to something like the fan base of the, the Amstrad. Uh, you know, it's it's not the most obscure machine out there, but it definitely wasn't on the Mount Rushmore of, you know, most units sold of the, of the micros. Uh, now, it's interesting to note that the UK got the Coco in a way in the form of a machine called the Dragon 32, Although it was it was kind of a clone device, it was manufactured by a totally different company. Neil, did you know anyone growing up who had a dragon? No, <laughs> it was one of the many <laughs> British micros that that just didn't float to the top, John. I, I didn't know anyone who had one in the eighties personally. I've got myself a few now, um, mm -hmm. and you you can actually just sort of swap the ROM and make a couple of very simple changes to turn it into a cocoa, and it mm -hmm. will act exactly the same. Uh, but I'm not entirely convinced that I need to experience my Dragon 32 in VR. <laughs> but please, go on. Okay, okay. So what our Coco using friend Ben did was he, you know, he interfaced this Omni multi-directional uh, track, uh, you know, um, thing with his Coco. Uh, and he actually immersed himself in some of the first-person perspective games on the machine. So uh, you should really check these videos out. I'd say that the speed of the scrolling, you know, as you move through these worlds is somewhat less than Wolfenstein 3D, but a big step forward from the early frame-by-frame -frame dungeon crawler games. Uh, it, it makes you realize, or at least it made me realize, that, that id's creations 
weren't as much of a sea change as much as they were evolutionary from lots of tiny steps that just didn't attract as much attention in the industry. And that's the way it is with a lot of innovations. Now, Neil, I'm sure you played your share of first-person games on the 8-bit micros growing up, you know, 3D bat attack on the Spectrum and all that stuff. If you got your hands on an Omni, which retro world would you like to explore in fully immersive 3D? Oh, you know, I really want to try this Omni, but the thought of combining it with some of these 8-bit games, it looks like a recipe for travel sickness just in an instant. <laughs> it, looks, it looks awful. I mean, it's impressive to see that they've paired up the, t the two technologies, uh, and it's certainly very well suited to the, the dungeon crawler type games based on the demos I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, so with that in mind, there is a fantastic port that everyone should take a look at at the moment. Um, it's not quite finished, but it's been in progress for some years. It's on the Commodore 64, and it's a port of Eye of the Beholder, uh, mm. which is being made by the developer Andreas Larsen. So uh, I'm cheating a bit by picking a modern-day port, but it is running on a C64. So I'll, I'll go with that in VR. Um, but yeah, do go and check out that port. The, the graphics are stunning. It could it could well be the Amiga version of the game when you look at it. It's wow. fantastic. So um, yeah, I'll try that. How about you, John? The first thing that came to mind for me was uh, Fantasy Star, actually, for the Sega Master System. Uh, I'm someone that is naturally prone to motion sickness, uh, and so I like the idea of a mix of playing the overworld sections of the game in classic 2D. If you're not familiar with this game, uh, whenever you're walking around the overworld going into towns and stuff like that, it's your typical uh, top-down Ultima slash Final Fantasy type uh, perspective. But once you go into a dungeon... Uh, it, the game becomes a first-person dungeon crawler, essentially. Uh, so it would be cool for me to, to mix those two viewpoints up in this uh, in, with this treadmill moving around in VR. So uh, if you're interested in checking out what the Omni can do with a retro computer, check out the links to the Explore VR YouTube page in the show notes. Take two shots, John, one for Ultima and one for Final Fantasy. That's right. <laughs> Got them both in at once. <laughs> and there's more to come. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Wait a minute. That's, that, that's next week's story. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> now, I like a trash to treasure project, John, but this next story might be too much even for me to save. It's a rare Sega arcade machine, the R360, of which only 100 or 200 maximum are reported to have ever been produced. And it has been found, this particular example, rotting, sinking in the mud of an Irish field. It's an incredibly sorry sight. Now, R360, John, do you know what the R stands for in R360? Uh, no, no idea. Does it stand <laughs> for uh, real, like real 360? <laughs> nope, it stands for rotate. It's not that uh, imaginative, is it? But it stands for rotating. <laughs> if, if you've not seen this before, it's an arcade, which is basically in a roll cage that spins the full 360 degrees. I mean, we were just talking about the Omni for VR, John. I would love to see this, a 360 degree roll cage and a VR helmet to play like flight sims in, you know? Mm -hmm. Although you might, you know, you were talking about feeling tethered. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't work if you're, getting, <laughs> if you're getting tethered up in an umbilical cord doing 360 yeah, degrees and, and barrel like something rolls. something out of an anime. You know, you've got all these cords <laughs> around you. <laughs> but, you know, it could be made to work. And, and two games were made for this device. Uh, one was called G-Lock Air Battle and another was called Wing War. And its existence came about, really, as Sega has identified the need for arcades to be more unique. So this was made in 1990. So they'd already identified that people were getting those more powerful games consoles, the Super Nintendo, the Mega Drive, 
or Genesis. They were getting them into their home and they needed to deliver to people a unique reason to go to the arcades. So this was one of their ideas. And the team behind it were the legendary Sega AM2 team. And they sold it for an excess of £70,000 per unit here in the UK. Wow. So, you know, we're into the very high-end luxury car territory for that kind of money back in 1990. So um, you asked me, John, what old games you'd like to, uh, yeah, you'd like to play in VR. Those old 8-bit games on the, on the Dragon and the Coco. Let's throw this back at you. What game do you want to play with added 360-degree motion? <laughs> oh, my gosh. A, a ton. Um, having a capsule like that would add immersion to almost any game. Uh, any game where you're seated, you're in a seated perspective, uh, whether it's a racing game, you know, flight sim, space shooter like Elite. And then adding to VR, uh, you know, adding the VR goggles would be the ultimate in realism because not only are you seeing the action, but you're feeling the action move with you. Uh, unfortunately for me, it would be the ultimate in projectile vomiting <laughs> because I'm, I'm a little bit squeamish and uh, I tend to get car sick just driving on normal country roads. So uh, I think I'd probably stick to the motion with a screen in front of me as it was originally in the R360 cab rather than using a VR headset. But I'm surely in the minority. Yeah, I mean, it does look a bit like something off the back of um, a Star Wars you know fighter or something so mm -hmm. some kind of star wars game where you're the the rig gunner um right. with in vr that would be good or maybe the bull turret or the various turrets on a b17 that would be fantastic um but you know you'll be lucky if you ever find one of these r360s cabinets to, to ever try that on unless you befriend mr lee peters because it's lee who spotted this abandoned cabinet in county antrim mm -hmm. uh, over in ireland it seems, this is the story that I've, I've picked apart so far, is that there used to be an arcade there, and then the R360 was moved into a shed just for storage in, in the later years. And then they think the shed simply rotted around the machine, <laughs> it just disintegrated, <laughs> leaving wow. the machine exposed to the elements. And if you look at the pictures of it, it really is. It, it just looks like it's fallen out of the sky into the middle of a muddy field. Um, it, quite surprised. It no has... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It, it kind of has that Ozymandias feel to it where, you know, the, it, the, the everything, all of the things around it have rotted away and only this one rotting corpse yeah. is left, you know. Uh, it, it reminds me of a retro gaming version of the famous Cadillac Ranch in Texas. Uh, have you heard of this before, Neil? No, no, I've not, no. So this is, this is one of these, it's like a Route 66 type uh, attraction where if you're traveling across the United States, you know, coast to coast, as many people do, um, there's a, there are all these different crazy things in the desert. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen this before, a group of art hippies uh, buried a dozen or so cars face down back in the 70s. So these things have their, their rear ends sticking up in the air, and they've been left to the elements uh, for, for almost 50 years now. So, as, uh, And, of course, graffiti artists have descended uh, like moths to a flame on these things, and they've, they've also left their mark on these cars. So... Who knows? Maybe this is the start of a new trend in this Irish field. <laughs> next year, we'll end up with a gutted computer space and a paperboy just appearing out of nowhere next to it. You know, uh, I'm sure that Cadillac aficionados were just as distressed by seeing their favorite cars left out to rot as we in the retro community are at this site. Um, now, Neil, as the restoration lord of YouTube, uh, do you think in the right hands you could bring this rusty Hulk back to life? it's really difficult to say from the pictures uh what the insides of it are like i mean cosmetically sure you could restore it and you could repaint it you could 
maybe recreate plastic panels and, and the vinyl artwork that that's easy if you've got access to the resources to to produce that kind of thing um on the inside it's the pcbs are they even present have they rotted away are they in a repairable state can you get the parts needed to repair them if if needed um how custom are the chips and the hardware in there it would take a monumental effort to achieve this mm -hmm. cosmetically and and internally and electronically and it might even require sega themselves to step in and search any old warehouses maybe they've got some old parts the schematics i would love to see them step up and um you know turn this into a marketing opportunity that we're going to help yeah. this guy we're going to restore I this think, yeah i think you could write a book just on the stories of arcades and the people that own them on their decision process in buying a 70,000 pound arcade machine. Like what were your receipts like that you could afford such an expense and how did you ever imagine that you could turn a profit, you know, in any in any respectable length of time? It would be interesting to hear about the economics behind those behind those decisions. Yeah, I've read that some some places would charge about 3 pounds per go at a mm -hmm. time when a premium arcade might be 50p, 20p sure. for a regular arcade. So pretty expensive to have a go on this thing. And also, what were you thinking? You could spend 70,000 on an arcade and then you could leave it just to rot? Just <laughs> to rot in the shed, mindset right? mindset there, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's crazy, it's crazy. Yeah. But, um, you know, well done to Lee for spotting this. I'm amazed nobody spotted it before, um, but but well done to Lee. Spotted the, the, the cabinet, if you can call it a cabinet. He took it home and he's at least put a roof over it. So I hope you'll be able to restore that thing. And I hope you'll be able to keep us all updated on progress. And Sega, yes. if anyone's listening, Go and help the guy. He needs it. Please. Good luck to you, sir. You know, Neil, all of all the classic computers out there that I've still not gotten a chance to use, the MSX has always appealed to me the most. It's got a compact design like the Amiga 600. It can handle both cartridges and discs. And it came in a dizzying array of styles from a variety of manufacturers. My favorite being the Candy Apple Red Sony Hitbit from 1984. I love the look of this computer. Neil, I know that the MSX had a bit of a foothold in the UK back in the day. Have you ever used one? I have. Um, and also you said um, cartridges and discs. This being the UK, of course, we had cassette tapes for it as well. Mm, <laughs> and it was... Yeah, you can't, uh, it, you can't issue a computer in the UK without a cassette deck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was pretty niche here. You know, uh, I know it did a lot better in other places in Europe, like Holland, where Philips were making it from their factory there and other European countries, but we did have them here. Um, I have here a Yamaha model, which is geared towards music creation. So it comes with its own big musical keyboard and software to arrange it. Um, so that's cool, that's a cool machine. Uh, and it's just one example really of the many, many flavors of MSX, such was the concept behind it to be this kind of open platform for you know, uh, manufacturers to step in and produce. I say open, it's not really the right word for it, but they had to conform to the standard that Microsoft and the others had come up with. But they mm -hmm. were free to create, you know, crazy add-ons, music-based ones. Um, I've got one from Canon. You know, all of these companies producing the MSX in the hope that it would be the next big thing. Yeah, but, it was um, sort of the yeah. promise. It was kind of the promise of the 3DO. I think that that was yeah. the opening it up to various manufacturers. They were hoping that people would create the same sort of wacky add-ons that the MSX got. The problem, well, there were lots of problems with the 3DO, but we're, we're exactly that's, that. we'll save yeah. that story for another another day. <laughs> so, Neil, as an MSX owner, there's a new storage solution out there that might appeal to you. 
Uh, subreddit user the cake was no lie turned us onto a device called the ESE S disk, which is a flash cart that's compatible with all of the MSX models from the original up through the MSX Turbo R, which I guess was like the the top of the the top of the mountain as far as MSX models go. Um, so this thing features two SD card slots and a meg of RAM with a battery backup. So in addition to giving you access to the huge MSX library at the touch of a key, you can also use that extra power to play some of the really impressive demos that are coming out of the scene. Uh, one I saw this week was called Bad Apple, and it really blew me away. I mean, it looked like it could have been made on an Amiga. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Bad Apple is a real classic. I've seen it on lots of systems. Um, it, it always looks impressive, whatever machine you see it on. I particularly enjoyed the BBC Micro, which is very cool. So yeah, it looks great on an MSX too. Yeah. Now, with this flash cart, it made me wonder, uh, are there any systems left that are in need of these kinds of flash storage solutions? I know personally, uh, I have a DivMMC future cart for my Spectrum. I've got a FujiNet for my Atari 8-bit, and I've got a Coco SD for my Coco and EverDrive cart for my NES. Pretty much everything I have, I have a, you know, a flash storage solution. And I was wondering, is there anything, Neil, in your collection that is sorely in need of a flash storage device? Mm. Well, the MSX is a great example because there were some MSX, MSX games that came with enhancements. So Konami came out with um, a lot of their games, if not all of them, had an SCC chip in, which would improve the music and the sound above and beyond what the MSX baseline standard was. And some of the flashcards that are out there incorporate these extras so you can enjoy them. And it's nice to see the flashcards. Uh, we spoke about one on the Mega Drive a while back that, that they'd managed to run Doom through. Uh, and that they're adding all of these extras into flashcards that enhance the capabilities of the machines um, to things like the SEC chip and then beyond to, to make them do things they've never dreamed of doing. So it's really nice to see the evolution of these flashcards. But a system I'd love, um, I've got this little USB hard drive here. I carry it around in my toolkit. It's got a little display on it. And what you do is you put CD-ROM ISOs on there. You use the click wheel on the side to select the ISO and it mounts it on the USB drive. And then when you plug it into the PC, it sees that as a CD-ROM drive with the CD in. And it, it's super useful for PCs that support USB. So, you you know, you can plug it in. And um, in many cases, you can boot from it and install Windows and things like that nice and easily. Now, I'd love to see something like this for what I'm working on at the moment, which is the Commodore CD-TV or even the CD32. So instead of wearing out the CD-ROM, which in the CD-TV is, is non-standard, it's a real pain to replace if it goes wrong, as I'm finding. <laughs> um, what you could do is you could have a little display. You could even try and set it up to use the LCD on, on the front of the CD-TV and some storage, and that would let you select an ISO off of an SD card and the CD TV would load it up like a regular CD. I would love that. I would love yeah, that. Yeah, it, so, it's it, what you're describing reminds me of the uh, the GoTech device that I have with a little external OLED screen that 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 sits in a little box and you just use the rotating knob to select the uh, the you know the ADF that you want to load. Exactly that. And there are similar devices for things like the Sega Saturn, the Dreamcast, the PlayStation. They've got their devices. So I know the CD TV owners market is very small, but Come on, someone, please, if you can make it that out there for all 12 of us CDTV owners, <laughs> then that would be fantastic. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and if you're an MSX fan who's looking to upgrade your system, or if you've already purchased one of these and you've taken it for a spin, let us know on our show subreddit. 
John, let me tell you about RetroRewind.ca. Now, this is a place that, well, much like you and I, it started off as a hobby and it really blossomed into something much bigger. And now it's a, it's a treasure trove. That's the best way to describe it, of, of useful items for your Commodore computers. 16, the 64, the Amiga, they even cover the Commodore 128. And what they stock is all of those really useful things that make retro computers a joy to use in the modern day. So if you need a Luma fix to eliminate the jail bars on your C64, maybe you need a new PLA or a kernel switcher, maybe you need to relocate your CPU on your Amiga to squeeze in that upgrade that won't quite fit in the A500's case. It just sometimes gets in the way, doesn't it? Well, retrorewind.ca, they've got all of these useful items in stock. And well, even if you don't need any of them right now, I would I would advise that you just go and have a browse through the the website to see what's available to you for future projects and just to enjoy seeing what you can do with all these retro systems now. Um, it, it's like flicking through an old Radio Shack catalog, John. You yeah, know, treat, yeah. treat yourself, have a peek. <laughs> oh, and I have, Neil, I have. Uh, don't forget they also do capacitor kits so you don't have to go searching all over electronics websites to find each and every cap you need to service your machine. Yeah, that's really valuable. I mean, just recapping the CDTV this week, uh, I managed to get caps that were 0.2 millimeters too large to actually fit in the case. So, you Ooh. know, if, I, if I'd just been able to get an off-the-shelf kit like that, I would have guaranteed they would have gone in and I wouldn't have had to deal with that pain. So, um, yeah, we want to thank RetroRewind.ca for supporting our show, having the confidence to support our show, just as we've got the confidence to endorse them through our own experiences of using their products. So a big thank you to RetroRewind.ca. Please do go and check them out. <laughs> Last week's community question of the week was, what arcade do you remember from your youth? And we're talking yeah, about we got... arcades as in a destination, not an arcade machine, following on from last week's uh, story. So, uh, John, do you want to start with our top three from our subreddit? Absolutely. Uh, first up comes from Asian Cyberman, and he says, I remember going to... Now, Neil, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation here after my, <laughs> my Gaza uh, incident last week. Uh, is this Pontins? This has to be a UK thing, right? Pontins, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember going to Pontins with my parents and playing Pong, which was amazing. Later on, I used to love Asteroids and remember being delighted when I had one of the top scores in the arcade, although I suspect a system had just been turned on. Uh, later, we moved to New York, and I discovered Ms. Pac-Man in a Howard Johnson's restaurant. Did you ever What's go to that? Pontins, Neil? Uh, I've never played Pong at a Pontins, no. no but, um, <laughs> I've not heard of Howard Johnson's. I don't know. What oh, that Hojo's is. was a very is a very famous uh, restaurant, and I believe also a, a, a motel chain. Uh, I think um, that Howard Johnson might have been a retired baseball player that opened up his own chain of, of, of okay. places, or Howard Johnson might have been a different guy that has no <laughs> no relation to this. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Hojo's was one of these. Uh, it was very popular in the seventies and the eighties. I think they've since all gone out of business. Okay, it does sound like a good baseball player's name. It's like John Madden, yeah. you know, Howard <laughs> Johnson. Right. Yeah, yeah. John Madden, excellent baseball player name. <laughs> So, Pajaco6502 is our second most popular answer this week. He says, I grew up in Canvey Island, a seafront town, and had easy access to arcades. The imaginatively named Casino was probably my favorite. It had a fun fair in the back, plus mechanical penny arcades alongside the classics of the day. Um, I don't know if you can show this or not, but this is how I remember it. And he's included a link to a photo. So perhaps, Duncan, you might be able to pop that up on the screen for people to see. And finally, Bigfoot651 writes, 
I never had an arcade where I grew up. However, our local pub had an arcade machine in the corner, which would be regularly swapped. My favorite as a kid was the gauntlet cab, Neil. Many yes. a week's pocket money was spent on it with friends. And you could spend so much money on gauntlet. That was designed, all arcades were designed to take your money, but that one in particular, it ate your money, didn't it, gauntlet? Very successful at that. Um, marvelous cabinet. Yeah, and I, I do want to read one more, uh, Neil, just because this, this one caught my eye. This comes to us from Tim underscore BFET66. He says, my grandmother retired to Cal Colwyn Bay in North Wales in the mid-70s from London. Visiting annually in the 80s, my abiding memory of walking into premier amusements is the incredible noise of the machines, and in particular Galaxian, the ditty before the wave of ships mm -hmm. starts to build up and swoop down. That and having to decide where to use the few oversized 10 pence coins we had with us. <laughs> Explain this to me, Neil. I don't know what an oversized 10 pence coin is. Well, I think he's just um, referring to the fact that, you know, our coinage has got smaller and smaller over the years. And 10 pence pieces did used to be pretty huge these days. Mm. It's quite a small mm. thing. So I think he's just referring to that. Yeah. But um, okay. yeah, great, great memories. The noise, the smell. Oh, yeah. Arcades. They're not they're not what they used to be, John. <laughs> no, no, they're not. So uh, we'd love to get your feedback, and thank you to everyone who submitted an answer to our community question of the week. As always, uh, up, submit your own, upvote your favorites, and we will read those top three most upvoted comments on the air. Uh, this week's community question of the week harkens back to our MSX discussion. Uh, what do you think is the most aesthetically pleasing computer design of all time? So great question. Surely we'll, we'll, we'll get some great responses from this. Uh, like I said, just pop on over to the This Week in Retro subreddit, and that community question of the week will be stickied right to the top of the page. So we hope to hear from you. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.